Hi, I'm Linus, and welcome back to the Interintellect Hostcast. In this episode, I talk to Jessie Manistow, editor-in-chief of Third Factor magazine, about her upcoming salon on the paradox of weirdness and neurodivergence. You can get tickets to her salon in the link below. And now, my conversation with Jessie. Hi, Jessie. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Linus. Thanks for having me. So super excited for your upcoming salon, uh, which is going to take place on January 7th uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, it's called The Paradox of Weirdness, an Exploration of Labeling, Normality, and Othering. Uh, so just to get started, I would just ask, you know, what is the paradox of weirdness? Like, how do you summarize that in 30 seconds? Yeah, I can do it in less than 30. Basically, uh, it's very normal for us to be very aware of what makes us weird. It's a really common human experience to feel weird. And therefore feeling weird is not weird in itself. If you don't feel weird, that makes you a little bit weird. Everyone's weird. That's the paradox of weirdness. Sounds fair enough to me. I think that, especially in, I think in in our circles, if I may make that leap, um, I think there's a lot of people who who want to be weird, who who really lean into their quirkiness, kind of the things that make them unique. I think we live in an age of authenticity in which, you know, being unique, being different is something that's celebrated. Um, so how much of, of weirdness is kind of a, can become like a self and like a like a status symbol, like neurodivergence as a status symbol? Like, how does that play a play a part in you know, how how we go about labeling, how we identify with certain characteristics and traits. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. I have seen the same thing in especially the crowd that is creative, uh, intellectually inclined. These are people who do put out cultural creations where something new and novel is valued. You don't want to just create the same old thing. Interintellect people are going to be that kind of person for the most part, maybe exclusively. Um, Otherwise, why would they be looking online to connect with us? And I think that's important, the role of the Internet uh, and being able to find other people who have this this quirk. But I I mean, there is something to authenticity, right? I don't think all these people are just faking it and being weird to try to get attention. Um, I think each human being has a little bit of something unique in us, right? That's that the, a lot of these things I'm saying are banal. They're not intellectual revelations, but when you put them together, you get something interesting about our culture, I would say. And so we're sort of sorting out in this very new technology of the internet, how our quirks can connect us with people when there's very little, you know, attention, the attention economy, there's a competition for uh, people noticing us, but we have this drive to find people who who may share something that we haven't found in our families and our schools. The thing that was salient to us as making us weird, um, I, of course, I feel that too. I went online to try to find people who would share those things with me, and I think that the you know the creative and the intellectual type of person does have you know genuinely speaking an an a need that is uncommon when you look at the mass of humanity, right? But those other human beings out there have their own weirdnesses that we just ignore. We just think those are just normies, but they also probably have something they're looking for and that we can't supply to them. So uh, I think I'm rambling away from the point of your top, your question, but that is the scene uh, at, that I set with this. And so competing for attention and trying to connect with people over our salient weirdnesses. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it all, a lot of it does come back to you know, belonging and just finding finding your tribe, so to speak. Yes. Um, but I do think that you no, know, you no, know, the way that this is different from let's say finding your tribe in terms of like an intellectual like a particular topic or like a sport or an activity that you're interested in. I think the, the concept of, of normal or divergent, I think there, there is one of the terms that's related to normal is normative. Mm. There is this idea of what's, you know, what's better in terms of, you know, a, what a norm is, what you should be doing uh, or who you should be. Uh, so in terms of how kind of the idea of the normative you know plays into this space and how um, people s- start sorting and thinking about normal versus not normal, uh, how how would you, you know bring yeah. in kind of the idea of normativity you know, into this discussion? Yeah. Um, yeah, the word normative is is really interesting. Um, I think it definitely has a connotation um of, prescriptive rather than descriptive right like you are this is what normal people do why can't you just be normal (laughs) that sort of thing um and we're we're social beings so this relational space if if everything is being built anew every time we interact that makes relating to other people hard and so when someone does throw you for a loop then making connections with other people is, is is more challenging and if if weird people, quote unquote, weird people are coming together, then that's going to happen more often. And I th- I think that that, among many other things, that is something that contributes to people kind of wanting to fly their freak flag, so to say. Um, and and it sort of sets the cultural tone for nor you know we're gonna we're gonna have a space that is not prescriptive, that is not normative. Um, which then, of course, becomes its own cultural norm. So we're all in these cultural spaces all the time. Um, and that's why I I really like the word neurodiversity as a property of the human species. I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical, and we can have a conversation about that, right? That's what I like about intellect. You can push back, and I will be looking forward to counterpoints on this in the salon. But I don't have a lot of use for neurodivergent because what is that norm that we're diverging from and and is is any individual person really so neurodivergent i would say probably a few but it's being used really broadly and and so we're all focusing on how we're weird and not really exploring other people and how they're weird and maybe we're projecting our own norms onto them rather than listening to them and seeing what their salient weirdness is yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, rejecting norms is its own type of norm. It's norms all the way down. Um, yes. <laughs> there, there's a type of kind of anti, anti kind of anti-social technology kind of at play um, that, that can happen. Um, but yeah, we'd love to you know, touch a little bit more on kind of just the, the social dynamics of neurodivergency you know, as it's playing out in the culture mm-hmm. um, in terms of it as a, a self-label um, something that people can identify with and make sense of their own experiences versus something that's a little bit more, if not scientific, but at least a little bit more objective and de- descriptive of something that's actually happening out you know, in the world. Um, and whether or not kind of the conflation of the two 
you know, yeah. what kind of types of you know, problems that it presents, like you, you know, started to allude to in terms of it as in being more of like a you know, internally reflecting kind of, you know, reflective tool rather than something that, you know, people are, you know, going out and actually trying to really understand how are, you know, person A, B, and C, and D, like, really actually different from each other. Yeah, I, I think you hit on the, a really important distinction here. The the whole, like, the DSM diagnosis model, uh, a diagnosis as a tool for a therapist to make a treatment protocol. And I've been working on with interviewing some therapists, doing some writing on this topic. And a lot of them said, no, that's, that's what it's for. It's not, it's not really an identity, but then there is that sort of inflated, I'm describing myself uh, with this word where it becomes almost like a magic feather. Uh, if you know that, did you know that um, there's like a children's story where like a little girl wants to go be a dancer, but she's nervous. And so she's given a feather that said, you can't make a mistake when you have this feather in your hand. And then she performs perfectly fine. Uh, I was like, well, the feather didn't do anything. It was just how you thought about yourself. So a lot of this, I think, comes down to people who really don't feel uh, permission to be their authentic selves, to use the word that would be, I think, very popular. Uh, they've been told that there's something bad about them. And whether that's just a miss fit in their cultural space and their family and their school. That's where I really would push back against um, labeling of a type that can imply pathology or that, you know, even that's, that's one, one conversation pathology are these labels, ADHD, autism. These are really uh, common ones now, but there are others. Um, there's a space for that in the therapeutic space. And I want to be really clear that I'm not arguing that those don't exist. I am talking as this about this cultural space where it's it's getting into that bigger thing you said. I am not a therapist. I am a writer and I've talked to therapists, so I should be very clear about that. Um but yeah, it's it's it is a permission to be yourself, kind of like that magic feather. And um this is this is my little neurodivergence. I'll go off rambling on a, a topic. So you got to rail me back in um here but yeah did, did i answer your question <laughs> yeah I, I think there's there's so much you no know, there's many, so many layers. layers and, and, so and many depths layers. to to get to um I, I do think that you know one of the things that you you touched on is you know these labels as an act of permission giving you know, yeah. that maybe someone else can can give to someone or they can give them give to themselves mm -hmm. that you no know, i think there's there's a there's a danger that you've you know, started talking about in terms of that there's so much over overlap with you know, actual pathologies and types of therapies that, you know, as, as lay people, you know, yeah. you know, there, there's, it's at least double-edged you know, for, for everyone to be able to self-diagnose in that way. Um, but I think also in terms of, you know, going back to the discussion about the normative um, that, you no, know, my my perspective as someone who's maybe a little bit more communally oriented than individualistic, that there is you know this idea of norms and idea of normal as models. Mm. It's important for people to be able to interact with each other, to to live well socially, um, and that you know this types of this type of um, cultural acceptance of neurodivergence, which obviously has its good side, 
but also mm-hmm. when it starts to become you know, excuses for you know behaving poorly or justifying you know certain types of bad behavior obviously it's a gray area but kind of where where do you land on kind of this kind of double-edged side of yeah that is another question that's key to why i wanted to do this salon um you, you said you're a little more communally focused um i have become more of that too i i come out of a very much uh culture and a family and an education that was very individualistic. And of course, I see the the value in that. But I would add to the individual and the communal, there's a space in the middle that I would call the relational that we don't talk about very much. And of course, communal kind of has a place for that, you know. Um, And so, yeah, it's, this is why it's important to understand how everybody has a weirdness. Nobody is a perfect exemplar of that, let's say the platonic ideal, right? The the image of what a perfect human being should be. And we all fail to come uh, to reach that model in some way. We all fall a little bit or a lot short and we know where we fall short and maybe we have been picked on or criticized for that. But some criticism is good. It helps us grow and we have to be strong enough to take that on board, create the ability to take criticism on board, feedback, if you want a gentler word, we should give our, our criticisms in a way that other people can hear. And some people give it when they're not really in a position to give it, but the world's always giving us feedback. And if you want a relationship, that is such a fundamental task of human life figuring out how do I get my needs met and offer to the world what I uniquely can offer without totally taking myself out of the group. I I don't really believe anyone wants that. There are people who are loners, but I don't think they would have chosen that. I think they defaulted to that because they got rejected. And something I have found really useful in overcoming that is looking for other people's weirdnesses and drawing them out and exploring them together and setting uh, in, in front of them that this this permission to express them, but but also making it a topic of conversation, right? Oh, okay, you struggle with that. That's really interesting. I struggle with this. Oh, we're both human beings who are struggling with some aspect of life. Well, that's normal, right? That is not that is not an uncommon part of the human experience. And it's, but we all, okay, I'm going to bring in another tangent here. We want to remember this is happening in, I said, the internet age where we can find other quirky people who share our quirks. And we also um, are are watching our communities kind of fragment. We are all going off on our own. We're leaving our families behind. We're moving away from the places where we were grew up. And even if we don't, all of our friends have probably left. That's the way that modern society works. And so even those of us who come from a more individualistic background are now saying, wait a minute, (laughs) where did everybody go? And this is the dynamic in which this is happening. And I wonder how much of our struggles and the things we might label, oh, I'm neurodivergent because I struggle with this, how much of it is just a normal human reaction to a fragmenting society where 
you have to connect with people again that that attentional economy hey pay attention to me let me in i'm like you and the 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 things that draw us to find to seek communities when we're in lonely and isolated spaces we're we're likely going to have negative emotions that we want to share with other people or have mirrored back because we're lonely and and disconnected and so we start connecting over these things that then i have seen lead to unhealthy communities where we're all just trying to say like you're okay and i'm okay instead of aspiring to that norm that platonic ideal and I, so coming back to your idea of normativity i think there's a very interesting tension this is where so much of human life happens between the platonic ideal and the fact that the real human norm is to have struggles and weirdnesses and quirks that you have to figure out like a puzzle where they fit in and we're kind of always in this tension between the two and maybe some of the stresses that i've described or other stresses that i that other people listening or attending the salon could think of that i haven't even thought of yet um might push us more toward one direction of, oh, I'm just weird. I need the magic feather permission to be divergent and away from trying to aspire to a positive norm, a platonic ideal that we choose, that we can authentically choose. Part of this is also deciding, okay, I'm a little weird, but I'm going to own it. You know, maybe I was told I was a bossy little girl. And so I became anxious, but there was nothing ever wrong with being a confident little girl. I was just spent, I spent Christmas with my four-year-old niece and man, is she a confident little girl? <laughs> she bosses everyone around. I'm like, but don't call her bossy. I don't want to break her little spirit, but that she stands out in that way. And is that a bad thing? I, I that's a, that's a personal and a cultural decision who knows what label they're going to put on her one day but it could be a wonderful thing and it could very much be rejected depending on the where she falls yeah and yeah I, I think that there's a lot lots of really great insights i i think that a, a couple of threads i think one is just that especially as children you know we have a, a really hard time uh being able to differentiate the descriptive and the prescriptive and so when people you know describe oh you're you're bossy or why are you so quiet you should be more confident um, that, that there, there's a lot of kind of intention that's mostly descriptive that 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 can come off very prescriptively, um, and I think that the other part of that is that um, in terms of kind of what's normal and why there's such a large discussion about kind of neurodivergence now is that it used to be that kind of being not normal only existed as a relational thing to how they're not normal. There, there wasn't a, a positive, not positive as in positive negative, but positive um, normative. There wasn't a positive description of you know, where where you you were kind of outside of the norm. It was only how you were not normal. Right. You know, the, the the distance, the, the gap between kind of where you were and what normal was supposedly. Um, and so building building a descriptive model for all the ways that people are different without necessarily letting go of what normal is and how normal you know can be a positive and useful and nice thing i think that's that's been the kind of the, the tension and the nuance that you know it, on the internet sometimes it's hard to hard to keep that uh, that made me think of a prediction that I have for the future. Right now, I see so many people adopting labels from the DSM 
And sometimes they use them to describe things that are completely opposite. I have a lot of people now telling me, oh, I have ADHD and this means, you know, X. And other people will say, I have ADHD and this means the total inverse of X. And I know if this has happened and I wish I could pull up the exact uh, what they said. I can't remember. I just remember the experience, but you could probably fill in many different ways that people do that. They're looking for these words that are being sort of, again, I say inflated a lot because uh, there is some, there's a there there, but what are people using them to mean? And so my prediction for the future is that these labels are going to go away. We, we, these, we see this happen. If we look back at the history of psychology and medicine, we update our diagnoses, we update our language, things that were diagnoses stop being diagnoses, but the problems remain. And so these giant, as we inflate, it's because there's a, there's a use for people for them. They, they're, they're getting some utility out of calling themselves again, let's just say ADHD, but they mean different things. So this is going to become confusing. And so we're going to have to come up with more specific and granular terms that may meet the neurodiversity movement's goal of not being pathological. They're just descriptive. They're just, you know, now there's, um, I, I should have figured out what the the specific term is, but there's now a, a, a term for tra a trait, a genetic trait that is just like novel, novel stimulus seeking. That's not it. But you, if you've heard it, you'll recognize what I'm talking about. And that that gene can predispose you to ADHD, but maybe you won't develop this whole syndrome of things that are, um, you know, it's not what I'm trying to get at here is it's a whole syndrome. It's all these things in the language we talk about and people are using it to mean little different parts of it. And that is confusing. Um, so I think that's where we're going to go to build a descriptive model. Like you said, yeah, you're different from the norm. This is your quirk, but let's be very specific about what it is and only, and be only as descriptive as possible without taking language that's medical, that means something a lot bigger than what we may mean to say with it. Save that for when we really mean that really big thing. And and just the more adjectives we have to describe human quirks, the more those things just do become part of the social fabric and the communal understanding. And the more we have uh, understanding of how to, to relate to different types of people, which comes back to this paradox of weirdness, because then maybe those of us using right now the people online, we're creators. We have that stimulus-seeking trait, right? So ADHD, of course, it's popular. It's all creative people. That's true for some of the heavier things, too, like bipolar, um, which is a big thing. Um, but the younger generations are seeing it to describe just their normal human struggles. Normal human struggles, but with disconnection. And so this is the hashtag we use. And so... That is where I would like to see us go to build that descriptive model with just adjectives, just descriptions of traits that are new and that bubble up and that maybe come out of breaking down what we're trying to use those DSM diagnoses to communicate and then leave those for where, you know, for where they were actually uh, intended for people who are really struggling and go to a professional for help overcoming major challenges. Yeah, I, I think I, I I totally agree. I I do think that you know I, I've seen in my personal life. Yeah, the downside of this is that you know as as you know normal normal people are are using these terms to try and find connection and, and identity, which is a totally natural and and I think 
natural. And I, I don't blame them at all. We live in a fragmented modern society that's very psychologizing, very scientific. It's part of the culture. It's kind of what you do. But it also really can hide and mask, you know, really severe problems and, and, and people who are really struggling. It makes it harder for them to, <clears throat> you know, to get the help that they need. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to kind of how you see this kind of cultural shift actually take place, especially as, you know, no, I, I think that this I think that this is some, something that Christopher Lash had talked about in, in the in this as early as the 60s and 70s about how kind of the therapist, the psychologist is kind of the modern priest um, that with the decline of religion, um, I mean, going to therapy is kind of our, our kind of the younger generation's version of confession. And that obviously, if you're a trained therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, you're, you're trained in these pathologies and this is the language and this is the vocabulary that you know. And, and so it's hard to see how endogenously can this group of people will be the, be the folks who are able to create this kind of non-pathological descriptive you know, vocabulary to, to talk about all the quirks and ways that people are different and may struggle, but is actually just part of, you know, you know the human experience. So it's funny that you talk about priests and confessions because I was about to say that and then I just stopped. I'm like, don't don't keep rambling on. But I have seen the very same thing that psychologists are our new priests. And when we feel bad and we want absolution, we go to them to be like, it's okay. Um, you can you can you can be you and I I forgive you, or now I label you. Um, there's just some act of taking that that human tension away. Now I wanna highlight an essay that I love. I really love this essay. And it's funny that it's by a a Christian Catholic writer, G.K. Chesterton, who died in the early, I want to say the early uh, 1900s, but maybe it was even a little earlier. One of the all-time great English language essayists. And this essay, um, which is linked in the um, the event um, for, for my salon, he talks about um, it's called On Certain Modern Writers and the Institution of the Family. I think it has a fairly long title. But he is talking about the same thing. Like, we all, he, if you read his description, he's saying like, yes, and, you know, grandpa has this problem and your aunt has this weirdness. And, you you know, you just have to put up with this, that all these people are going to have these quirks and struggles. And he's he's a religious writer, so he always kind of ties it back to trying to be in this tradition of you know the christ-like tradition but every culture has has come up with some way to do that um to have a a path toward that platonic ideal but the various ways that individuals fall short and fall off of it and a healthy one will be one that acknowledges the specific individual's quirk and helps them sort out whether it's something they want to embrace and own and be a little different, but be okay with it. Or if it's something they want to work on because it's not serving them. And, and those of course are the hardest ones. Those are the ones where people get very defensive and say like, no, no, I can't. I have this insert diagnosis here. I just can't overcome that. And that's a, that's really hard. That is really hard. Um, and some people, I want to say everyone has something like that, but some people, you know, got dealt a much harder hand than others. We we can't get around that. 
what we will have to do is I think at least just start talking about this fact and how our cultural shifts are playing up different parts of it where these human needs, these age long human needs are now being dealt with in a different way that has positives that we want to nurture and encourage and build infrastructure around. And maybe some that are not helping us. Um, Twitter is a favorite punching bag. I'm on Twitter because I'm self-employed and I'm lonely. And, you know, you can belong by sharing your anger over something. That's a, that's a major way to belong, but also by saying how weird you are. And I mean, bad, weird. I always distinguish between like good, weird and bad, weird. The ones where we need that magic feather to say, no, I'm okay. Um, and the, if we, the, the first step right now, I obviously I don't have the answer, but the first step is to have these conversations and sort of talk about what is really going on. And, and, and I'm millennial, elder millennial, but I think Gen Z looking at this, there's so many bright young voices who are coming out of this total shift where the grownups have no idea what's going on. You know, I was a 12 year old on the internet in, you know, the mid nineties and my parents had no idea. They're like, that's nice. She's playing with the computer. The computer's the next big thing. Oh my gosh. Now when, when, when our generations that I, I mean, everyone who grew, was a, was online before they were an adult can come forward and say, Hey, I know what the children are facing. And I know that they're get trying to get their needs met in this way, rather than back in school. We're, we're going to have these conversations and we're going to figure out that I'm going to encourage that, or I'm going to discourage that. I'm going to walk you through what I know you're seeing. I don't have the answers, but I really want to be part of a community that that talks about this and has these discussions. Yeah, I think it's it's a really important discussion, especially now that you know in our kind of more modern world, we're a little bit more disconnected with tradition. You know, there there are things about tradition that are really important, useful, some of which are more obsolete. But I think one one of the consequences of that is that again, these younger generations who are growing up on the internet and talking to each other, their peers rather than their elders, they're kind of rediscovering grief, they're rediscovering alienation, you know, very, very normal, you know, human experiences. But, you know, since they're you know, not connected to how I mean, past generations dealt with these emotions, dealt with these experiences, they're you know, really searching, really, you know, searching hard. Uh, and sometimes inventing, taking taking things that they learn from therapy, taking things that they learn from, you know, influencers and whatnot, books that they're reading, and trying to create their own uh, worldview. And I think it's 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 very it's very interesting. It's very bold. It's um, at times very moving, but but also, I mean, we're kind of kind of reinventing the wheel. I think exactly. in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that's a lot of work to put on. A single generation. I really want the space that I'm part of to be intergenerational. So we can hear from people who have been through this, the wisdom of older people that in, in modern Western American culture, at least like I, <laughs> we don't trust, you know, don't trust anyone over 30 is the saying from the 60s. And now those people are the ones who are not being trusted, but they have so much experience. So I feel for people who are younger nowadays who really do have to do this work because there has been in all these shifts I've been talking about a you know a separation a chasm has opened up that has 
it's hard to get that wisdom over that gap. Um, which is not to say that that the older generation has all the answers because they didn't live in this in this system where we have to connect with people over hashtags and we compete for attention with not just the normal people around us, which again, read Chesterton's essay. I love it. And if you don't, even if you don't come to my salon, I, I want more people to read that essay. Um, you just, you have to put up with the people who are near you and create that relational space with them. And that's where I think the paradox of weirdness is so powerful because instead of going out and branding yourself as like, hey, I'm weird, hashtag insert, you know, self-diagnosis here, um, which is not to say those people don't offer value. They're part of the conversation too. But instead of doing that, you can just talk to the random card of a human being that you were dealt as your neighbor, as your cousin. And that person's going to be really different from you in a lot of cases, instead of competing with you for that same little slot of internet attention and hashtag clicks. That's what the essay by Chesterton is about. The people who, even back then before the internet, people would go off into the world and try to find the space where they fit, find your tribe. But to really see the variety of humanity, just look at the people who got put right around you and try to understand them and how they feel weird and what they're dealing with. That is where a lot of this fuel is going to come from. But of course, our infrastructure is not set up in any way to encourage that. Yeah. And I think especially that the internet is actually has been a really powerful tool in basically breaking apart you know, involuntary associations and everything on the internet can be a voluntary association, which I think is also very double-edged you can find people that you 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 really connect with but i think taking away that kind of necessity that constraint of having to deal with people who are just so different who are constantly next to you i think taking that away has you know will have lots of interesting consequences around how how well we're able to connect with people who we don't you know you know don't really understand at first um, I think that's that's a really interesting you know, problem that I think is going to um, become more and more uh, you know, prevalent. Yeah. And those people, uh, unfortunately, based on our infrastructure, because it's challenging, those people are probably our best bet for finding belonging and human connection. If only we can get into the same living room with them and just sit there and talk. And then the hashtags and labels break down because that person sees you in your fullness, as much more of you, at least, of course, there's hidden parts, parts that are hidden from yourself, as well as parts that are hidden from them. And yet so much more of you is visible to that person who you randomly were dealt who sits down across the room from you, than you would ever be visible of you on the internet. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't want to spoil the entire conversation, because um, <laughs> there is a whole salon on this topic, you know, coming up on January 7th. Um, this was you know, such a fascinating conversation. This wish it could go longer, but uh, Jesse, thanks so much for being on the podcast and really excited uh, for you to host the salon in a week. Thank you, Linus. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>